parfait. Now we know one semi-final is going to pit Diego Maradona against the host Italy. He's going to get a great reaction there. But that's a little, another little while away. We're going to decide the other semi-final today. Starting off with Germany versus Czechoslovakia and then England versus Cameroon. So Turlock, you're going to take us through Germany, Czechoslovakia here first. Is Rudy Voller still banned for this game? He is. We're, we're missing... Um, we're missing bubble-permed saliva victim Rudy Voller for this one. Um, Karl-Heinz Riedle has stepped in in his place. And yeah, this is kind of something of a, of a forgotten game, not in Czechoslovakia, where it's, um, where it's kind of the high point of their football in many ways, I suppose, uh, just before that, that period when, when the two countries divorced. But probably the, the least remembered of the four very dramatic Italian 90 quarterfinals. And it's an exceptionally one-sided game. Uh, West Germany absolute, absolutely dominate from, not quite from start to end, because Bielek has a, has a free kick um, well saved within the first five minutes. Um, but Guido Buchwald is somehow, somehow as a defender, getting on the end of almost everything Germany create. He has a, he has a, a weak shot that he really should score, saved well uh, by Stachgall after 17 minutes. And then just a minute later, from the same, from the same action or the same phase of play, he has a header cleared off the line by Hasek, and that's actually one of three headers from corners that West Germany will have cleared off the line uh, throughout this game. It's, it's, it's almost like some sort of mini-game going on within, within the match. But after 25 minutes, we were talking about uh, Eamon Dunphy's kind of supervillain origin story. I think this might well be Jürgen Klinsmann's origin as, as the notorious diver because he, it's actually a really nice piece of skill. He wriggles past a couple of players on the left and then kind of tries to, tries to or whether he tries to or not, he, uh, he slaloms through Hovenets and Straka and is brought down by one, both, or neither of them, depending on, <laughs> depending on which replay you, you look. It's a, you watch, it's an absolutely outrageous dive, whether there's contact or not. Can I just say, though, I think the problem comes from, I think the Czechs in general were a little bit clumsy in this game, making, I think quite a few of them were booked. And if you look back on this, there's about four clumsy tackles that go in just before that. I think it's as Klinsman's cutting in from the left. Someone tries to clip and someone tries to clip him. And then the player, as you said, whichever one of the players end up fouling him, they still sort of have their legs dangling out there, just asking Klinsman to dive over them. So as you said, as much of a, as much of a villain as you want to call him in this, it's so stupid from the Czechs. It, it is, but uh, I, I think it's also a reflection of the fact that, that that's what Klinsman's looking for. I think for, he's not particularly looking to get a shot off here. He's looking to get you know, a plausible dive in. Uh, the referee is persuaded. Um, the Czechoslovaks were somewhat understandably miffed by the fact that the referee was not only an Austrian, uh, but an Austrian called Helmut Kohl, who, of course, was also the, the Chancellor of Germany of West Germany at the time. Um, but he points to the spot anyway. And it's Matthias who just fires an unstoppable penalty past Stachgall. It's, it's not down, down the middle, but it's, it's 
so hard and so well struck to the to the goalkeeper's left that uh, even if he goes the right way, he's not getting near it. Czechoslovakia have a have a I think a decent decent shout for a penalty and um, one of those that you know the, the classic phrase if it's anywhere on, else on the pitch it's given because it's quite innocuous but there is contact but that's not given um, and yeah Hasek manages manages in his own private duel with German corners managed to cl- manages to clear one off the line from Klinsmann again just before half time um, 1-0 at half time to West Germany second half exactly the same pattern uh, West Germans not quite peppering the goal, but they have all the they have all the possession. I don't know if the Czechoslovaks are beginning to feel the effects of what's been a very kind of a competitive tournament for them to date, but they don't really contribute a huge amount. Unbelievably, Guido Buchwald has another header from a corner, headed uh, booted off the line. Um, he's he's not not destined to score um, today, but uh, yeah, Bein and Bremer have two more shots. Well saved. Um, Bein takes it round Stejka l- later in the second half, and I think gets brought down. It's just certainly it's far more plausible a penalty than the one that was awarded in the first half, but uh, no dice on this occasion. And then after 70 minutes, one of the one of the more unlucky, I suppose, red cards of the tournament, at least how Lubomir Moravchik tells it, because he's already been booked. He goes down very easily, looking for a penalty on the on the byline. It's not given. And what he says he did was kind of thrust his, his leg towards the referee to indicate where the contact was or what the contact was. And as he does that, his boot flies off towards the referee. Uh, something, of a, something of a kind of Alex Ferguson, David Beckham type scenario, except it doesn't actually hit him, but the referee very, very calmly and uh, Teutonically, if I can say that, um, produces... A second yellow card. That's it for Moravchik's World Cup, and that's pretty much it for the Czechoslovaks World Cup. Nemechek misses a decent enough opportunity at the end. It's, he doesn't catch it, so it's not a chance as such, but it's a good position. But that's pretty much the only serious chance the Czechoslovaks have in the whole game. And it finishes up after probably their least impressive performance of the tournament, but um, one that was still laden with chances. West Germany won, Czechoslovakia nil. On the shoe flying off on the day of a Beckham element, I have just two things on that. One, didn't Vincent Brown, he asked, was it Ken Early? It was Ken Early, I think, on, uh, on Tonight with Vincent Brown about the hairdryer, which he thought he conflated that story with Alex Ferguson throwing a hairdryer at David Beckham. He believed that's what that incident where he kicked the boot and hit Beckham in the head was, that he'd, he'd fucked a hairdryer out <laughs> That's what he thought the hairdryer treatment was, literal battery. And also, I've actually played in a game, a friend of mine actually, where he was tackled. Badly enough, his shoe came off and he used that shoe to attack the man who tackled him. Just on this exit for Czechoslovakia, we've sort of talked about the, the, the break of a couple of different countries and and i think this is a particularly interesting one we mentioned it's a fall of communism there just before this and a great time in their history and a great time for them to enjoy the the national team as i said there was only a couple of hundreds supporters generally at their away games before this whereas they traveled in numbers for this kind of game and you can find some interesting quotes from um Balklad Nemekech talking about how just how fondly he, he remembers it. and he talks about the buses of you know, there wouldn't have been a lot of people staying over because, uh, I mean, their, their currency at the time, the Czechoslovak crowns would have been quite weak 
compared to the Lira. So you think about how long they had to make that last. And, and as I mentioned, the, the player there a moment ago, uh, Nemechek talks about it. a lot of buses coming from Czechoslovakia after matches and pretty much driving straight up or straight back. So it's, it's an interesting time in their history and, and uh, you know, good time for their football team and good time for their, their nation as well, by the sounds of it. But uh, yeah, as we know, Rome would have been rip-off city, so they wouldn't have been lasting all that long there. Newspapers are one of the very few things that come cheap in Rome. The Eternal City is certainly cashing in on the World Cup finals. It's become rip-off city. Whether it's a restaurant, a bar or a shop, the chances are that you'll have to pay well over the top. Taxes seem to have a supplement for just about everything. One tried to charge me an extra three pounds just because he had a radio. Well, we've had a couple of low-scoring quarterfinals up until this point, Dave. We come to Cameroon versus England, and I think it's important at this point to talk a little bit about England's shape. They've left McMahon out of the team. David Platt's come in, and it's a pretty adventurous, attacking, and maybe a little bit of an arrogant lineup actually at this point in the tournament because uh, I suppose you're always going to call people that go attacking adventurous or arrogant, but it probably implies that they don't have as much to be worried about with Cameroon, who, uh, again, have got top man Roger Mia on the bench. Yeah, it is a bit kind of um, swashbuckling, and maybe you call it the, the sort of gung-ho approach that England take in the game. And I think maybe they're, Bobby Robson denied it after the game, but I think they're probably taken by, a bit by surprise by the, the, the quality of the Cameroon team. Um, Cameroon very much dominated the first quarter. They had a, a few good chances, but the best one fell to uh, the Francois Omenbiak, the, the the hero from the Argentina game on the opening day, who should score when he's one on one with uh, Peter Shilton, but puts a, a fairly tame effort that's blocked by the by the keeper, and it comes back to haunt them after 25 minutes when um, uh, I use the word swashbuckling there a few minutes ago. Um, very much so, in, in the sense that Stuart Pierce is finding himself a lot, a lot of the game up near the up near the uh, Cameroon box, and he floats in a, a beautiful cross for um, David Platt to bury from the back the back post. Even so, Cameroon didn't it didn't seem to to get them down too much. They had a few more chances before the break, and really should have equalised. Um, Thomas Leby twice went very close, and, and really probably should have done done better. At halftime, Roger Mila came on. The, maybe he, he, I think he'll go on to be one of the iconic figures of of this tournament and of World Cup football in general. And he, he really changes the game. It's him who wins the penalty that that, that brings Cameroon level just after just after the hour, drifting through the defence and nice control. And he's taken down by Paul Gascoigne. Emmanuel Kunde then buries the penalty. Cameroon straight after the goal, they bring on Eugene Akeke. And he scores within two minutes. Once again, it's Roger Miller. It's a beautiful, lovely little piece of skill and kind of shows the composure that maybe they didn't have in the first half. And uh, he plays in KK for what is a, a sublime finish. And just on that one, I'd really watch out for the celebrations afterwards where um, Omen produces probably one of the athletic moments of the tournament, if not World Cup history, jumping fully up, not only on KK's shoulders, but he jumps up and lands with his legs on Akeke's shoulders and somehow Akeke manages to not, you know, break his neck because it's, <laughs> it's absolutely spectacular to watch. It's almost as good as the game. It's almost in that setting where you'd expect him to put on a big coat and try and sneak into like a cinema as one person. It's that kind of a situation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
but it's, uh, it's I think it's more suited to uh, the Winter Olympics than it is to to the Football World Cup. But um, we'll, we'll move on anyway. And uh, Cameroon should should absolutely actually add to their lead after that. They they continue to be dominant. They they have all the um all the momentum, and it really doesn't look like it like England are going to get into back into the game. They've they've tried an awful lot, but they don't seem to be capable of breaking down the the Cameroon rearguard. And it's only due to a rash tackle by Benjamin Massing that I think it's probably a little harsh it looked like Lineker was already going down but Massing already on a yellow raises his foot like that and Lineker is not going to turn down an opportunity like that and he buries the penalty himself so it goes to extra time and Cameroon still despite the fact that they've they've never really been at this stage before they've ne- probably never had to dig this deep before they're still probably marginally the better team but um, a, a defence splitting ball in the end from, from Gaza a lovely little pass that you know takes out uh, the last remaining sweeper, and uh, Lineker's true on goal, and again he sort of, sort of manufactures the the contact with the the goalkeeper's outstretched arm, and it's probably just about a penalty. And again, you wouldn't really uh, bet against Lineker from the spot. He puts it in, and it's unfortunate because I think if the game had gone to penalties, I would have favoured Cameroon purely because they're the more technically gifted team, and you know not just because it was England and England have what the. the they're not going to win a, a penalty shootout at a major tournament until until uh, 2018. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's really unfortunate as well. There's, what, eight minutes before the 90? I mean, Cameroon should probably solidify and, and keep everyone back. Eight minutes to go, they, they get pulled back. And I think always when you see a, a shift in momentum like that, you're a little bit worried for uh, the, the kind of the perceived weaker team going into extra time. How many of the penalties were actually penalties? Watching this back, I would say probably none. Uh, I think I think the Cameroon, the first one probably was, and I think the the one in extra time probably was. I, I don't I don't really know about the 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 one that got England level. I'm just not. I, I don't I don't know how much contact there was, but I think Lineker was almost on the ground already. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think you watch all of them back, and you're like, if none of them are given, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be too stunned. But it, it is a, it's a shame for Cameroon. I mean, as you said, eight minutes away from, from going through. And there's probably a bit of the naivety of a team who didn't come into this all that well set up, considering what we said about their manager and the likes of Mia being sort of uh, parachuted in last minute as well. But it is one of the, the great joys of the tournament gone after this kind of game. And I think it's one of those, it's, it's a classic tournament in the sense that it's two teams playing against each other with a sweeper. And I think both teams probably need a sweeper because they're both kind of you know, a bit a bit rubbish defensively. So uh, it turns into one of those sort of interesting sort of tactical games that you don't really see anymore. The referee, Codasal from Mexico, is a deeply annoying character who has these emphatic gestures when he when he awards anything or blows the match up. Um, so I think that's what's added to the kind of, uh, added to the dubiety of these penalties over the years. Well, that's it for Cameroon. Unfortunately, we've uh, lost one of the more enjoyable teams to watch in this tournament, but we are now uh, pretty set with our semi-finals. We know very much that it is going to be Italy, Argentina and England, West Germany. Let's check in at home, though, first before we uh, kick on to our, another couple of break days here. Uh, Turlock, how, how are things looking uh, for Ireland's big welcome home? I imagine, uh, I mean, it's got to be beyond the hero's welcome, surely. Absolutely. And what's, what's really interesting about it is that the players themselves and Jack Charlton um, really have, have no conception of what's coming. And I, I think they struggle to get their heads around it because, you know, from their perspective, they've made the quarterfinals. They haven't done anything too earth shattering. And, and of course, in those days, you know, there's no social media. There's no, there's no um, 
there's not as much direct contact from home. So I think they were, you know, Con Houlihan's famous line about missing the World Cup because he was in, in Italy. I think there's an element of that with the players. Um, but they're, yeah, they're, they're shell-shocked when they get back. The fans start assembling at Dublin Airport from one o'clock. Uh, the flight doesn't get in till half six. It's been dubbed the, it's been re-labeled the St. Jack. Um, I think it's also, <laughs> it's interesting how we talk about um, Italian 90 being sort of the brink of the, the Celtic Tiger era. Which, you know, I think any, any connection is, is nonsense, but it's interesting that there's still kind of hints of the 80s and of kind of chintzy, cheesy Irish 80s-ness about this because what the players are presented with by Aer Lingus are a set of inscribed tankers, tankards and an Aer Lingus teddy each. Um, it's also mentioned that the senior hostess on the, which is what they were called at the time, uh, on the flight is uh, Pat Jennings' sister, Marie Jennings. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Just when you mentioned the, the sort of giveaway and prizes, I remember seeing the footage of the RTE studio that they have, I can't remember, some, you know, one of those places that makes some lovely crystal this or that, um, Waterford crystal or Kilkenny crystal or something like that. So anyway, uh, they have a scale World Cup trophy made out of crystal that one of the players are going to get and you can vote on, on which player is going to get it. So Paul McGrath for us, I'm not sure if Paul McGrath got it in the end, I assume he did. Yeah, Paul McGrath did get player player of the tournament. I'm not sure that would be allowed now. FIFA actually have very strict rules on on replicating the World Cup. Believe it or not, <laughs> you're not allowed to do it. You're certainly not allowed to do it to scale, which is which is a little bit a little bit out of order, I think. Um, Charlie Hawley, somewhat similar to uh, Leo Varadkar, is is a great man for claiming credit for things he had very little to do with. He he is very eager to associate himself with with the team, even though as we know he he ruled entirely out of order the idea of a, of a bank holiday for the Romania game. Uh, but he's gone over at the last minute for the Italy game and come back with the side. He was in the dressing room minutes after the Ireland were knocked out. And he gives a, he gives a standard politician's uh, speech. And um, of course, one thing that, that complicates matters for everyone, not least the Gardaí and the city authorities is that on the very same day, Nelson Mandela is in Dublin to receive his, um, to receive the free freedom of the city at, at the mansion house. And it's kind of watching these events intersect. It's kind of like the end of Goodfellas where it's, it's just constant, you know, it's just this kind of frantic cavalcade of events that seemingly have nothing to do with one another, but are, have, have got hopelessly intertwined. But yeah, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that this homecoming is as much part of Italia 90 when people talk about the phenomenon of Italia 90 as any of the, you know, as anything that happened on the field, um, there's estimates of half a million to a million people on the streets of, of Dublin for this one. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a, a fitting send-off and a send-off without which the position of Italia 90 in, in Irish society would be, would be very different. And as I said, when people talk about Italia 90, it's as much about this reaction and about this spontaneous kind of outpouring of joy on the streets of Dublin as the football itself. So yeah, a very memorable day. And I suppose the slightly ironic thing is that very few of the players had any reason to return to Ireland because they don't live or play there. <laughs> there was a, yeah, there was a party very much there for them to, to turn up. And I'm sure Paul had to get his big joint Crystal World Cup. So there was, there was a few reasons to return, all right. Well, look, we've got a rest day again tomorrow. So no podcast tomorrow, but we'll be back with the semi-finals on the 3rd of July. 